Good morning, everybody. Um, somebody asked me just this morning uh, in a much more polite way, but like, who are you and what are you doing here? Uh, and if you haven't been around, maybe you, we haven't had a chance to be introduced. My name is Tucker, uh, and I am the ministry director for Serving Leaders Ministries. And um, we have an office here in Westchester, um, the mothership. I am the director for our office in Willow Grove, so just north of Philadelphia. And um, I got to know Robbie and, and you, Ironworks Church, through the, actually the Phoenixville Church. I preached up there uh, a few times about a year ago. And, and then just got to know Robbie through events that Serving Leaders would put on. And Serving Leaders um, provides care, counsel, um, counseling um, for pastors, ministry leaders, churches throughout the Philadelphia region. And um, so it's a joy to be with you. I'm really excited to be with you today and, and then here again in a, a couple of weeks later. Um, but if you've been here the last two weeks, you have read the first two chapters of Ruth, and we're going to be continuing on. We're going to actually be finishing the story of Ruth today. Um, so let me read just a portion. We're not going to read the, the final two chapters of Ruth. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of portions, um, and you can follow along. The text is printed in your bulletin. Starting in Ruth, chapter 3, verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he, Boaz, said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And then skipping ahead to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the beauty of your word. Thank you for this story of Ruth. And thank you, Lord, of, for, for all of Scripture pointing forward to Jesus, our King, the last in the line of kings that come from Ruth. We pray, Lord, that um, 
you would direct our hearts, that you would still our hearts and our minds, that we would see Jesus in our text today. So bless this time now we have together for the sake of your glory and our joy in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. So the question that we've had from the beginning of this book is what portrait is God painting in this wicked landscape, even in our um, uh, corporate confession, we, we uh, Parker referenced the book of Job and, and the book of Judges. The book of Judges, particularly, everyone did as he or she saw fit. This wicked landscape, what is God going to do in this simple story of a Moabite woman, Ruth? What portrait is he painting? And then for us, as we meditate on this story, what portrait is God painting in our own lives, in the midst of our own landscape? And as we, as we do so right now, as we think about the painting of your life, it were, if it were a painting, what would it be like? Would it be, um, would it be like Jackson Pollock drips and splatters, kind of confusing? Would it be sort of psychedelic Andy Warhol or Jean-Michel Basquiat? Would it be um, the horror of Pablo Picasso's later work. What, what would the painting of your life be like right now if you had to say, yeah, it's like this? Well, I wanna show a couple of pictures. Beth, can we put that first one up maybe? And I don't know, yeah, there we go. We can sorta of see it. That's my daughter, Kiana, posing in front of a painting. And I wanted to get one actually bigger than this. I, I referenced that first week, like if you have, see a huge landscape, this is Thomas Aikens, a Philadelphia painter. Um, he's got a bunch of works at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's a pretty big picture. And it's a, in my mind, it's the Rocky picture. It's an old uh, 19th century uh, smoky um, uh, arena where there's a, a boxer. But the, the cool thing about this picture, if you see it, yeah, there's in the foreground, there's this, this boxer and he's being waved down because he just got knocked out apparently. But there's all these faces in the background and you're wondering like, what are the stories of each of those faces? Right? So that's kind of been the idea is we're, we're thinking about Ruth. We've got this big, huge, wicked landscape, but then we've got this miniature. What's going on in this miniature with the story of Ruth? What's going on in the little miniatures of each of the people who are in the crowd in that painting? All right. Now I'm going to show you another picture here. All right. And this one is a little bit tougher to see. Now there's actually two pictures. One on top is um, from Kiana, my daughter, when she was like three years old, two years old. The one on the bottom is from uh, my daughter, Lauren, when she was maybe 10, maybe eight, more like eight. Right. When you look at those, you compare that to Thomas Aikens, and we'll look at a picture later. Um, you're like, well, yeah, that looks like maybe it was drawn by a three-year-old. No offense, Kiana. I love you, baby. But, um, like, what, what's going on here? What, what, what's that? Well, it looks like, you know, that's maybe me and Kiana up top together, those thick figures. And uh, then in the bottom, I, don't, I think that's a bee um, and a fish, and I don't know. And you look at that, and it's kind of confusing. Like, what's going on here? This is a little bit strange. Um, Can we make any sense of that? It's just, it's a little bit confusing. I think the question is, is is that beautiful? We'll come back to that. Don't answer that question out loud, but we'll come back to that. But let's, let's, we we can lose the, the pictures for now, but back to Ruth's miniature in the midst of the judge's landscape. 
So far, her painting, if we would paint her life, we would see difficulty, pain, uncertainty. However, we're going to see today in these last two chapters of the story, beauty. We're going to see the story come together amidst all of the horror that Naomi and Ruth have experienced, all the uncertainty. It comes together in something beautiful. Now, imagine Naomi, if you remember the story, imagine Naomi. She said, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. Lost her husband, lost her sons. Try to imagine her settling her heart on that. My story is going to become beautiful? I don't know about that. All the setbacks, the smudges, the coloring outside the lines, the clashing of colors. In chapter one, there was the famine, and and Naomi has to leave her home and go to some foreign nation to Moab. And while in Moab, Naomi's, the men in Naomi's life all die, and so she returns to Israel again bitter. And in chapter two, last week, we saw, well, there's this inkling of hope for Naomi and Ruth. But there's this inkling of hope in this person, Boaz. He's a distant relative and he appears on the scene, but Boaz is just this old guy. And so there's this uncertainty, what's going to happen to these two women. And then we get into chapter three and Naomi is a sort of matchmaker, plans this risky move and suggests to Ruth, Ask Boaz to marry you. Ask this, this kinsman to marry you. He'll take care of us. And, and in the story, if we would read through all of chapter three, we're getting dangerously close to like chick flick territory or maybe a Tinder episode when another problem enters the story. There's another person besides Boaz who's actually a closer kinsman redeemer who would, it sounds weird now, but in antiquity would have the right to marry Ruth and take Ruth and Naomi's land for himself. So we're still left in uncertainty. So Ruth, she's lost her husband and she's now cast her lot with the God of Israel. She's in desperate trouble. And at Naomi's behest, she asks Boaz to marry her. And if you turn to Ruth and if you just look really quickly In chapter 3, verse 4, Naomi says to Ruth, But when he, Boaz, lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And it goes on. She explains a little bit more to Ruth, kind of this this idea of you got to somehow connect with Boaz. Now, some have suggested, suggested that passage I just read and other um, explanations that, that Naomi gives to Ruth, that there's some sexual innuendo happening in chapter three. I disagree. <laughs> and there are many commentators who disagree and say, well, that doesn't really fit contextually with the wholesomeness of the story. It's not really the point of what this story is about. When we read cover me and we see that language in verses seven, nine, 13, and 14, cover me, what Ruth is really doing is she's asking Boaz, will you marry me? Marry me. And the point of this passage then is we see the faithfulness of Boaz. She asks him in a sense, and he says, I'll do it. I'll marry you. I'll I'll cover you. And then if we uh, skip down to chapter four, chapter four starts with him doing just that. Boaz had said, I'll do it. I'll cover you. I'll marry you. And immediately the text shows him doing it. 
He's at the gate, the city hall of the city, to do this important business of figuring out, okay, who has the right to marry Ruth and, and then take her land so that the line of Malon, Ruth's old husband, continues on. And he waits there for the kinsman redeemer, the next in line, to determine what will happen to Ruth. The point of the end of chapter 3 into the start of Chapter four is Boaz keeps his word. There's fidelity on his part. He's faithful. He, he says he's going to do this to Ruth and then he does it. And when you see fidelity in God's people, that's the fruit of the spirit. And the spirit of Christ loves the vulnerable and the oppressed. And so from that, we finally get to this determination, man. We weren't sure. Elimelech wasn't a very good guy. And um, now Boaz, he sounds like a pretty good dude, but... It, no, he's a good man. He's a good man. He's caring for the person right in front of him, Ruth. And I want us to think about that for just a moment. Um, I, I get nervous after years of working with college students, both in Iowa and here in Philadelphia, how much pressure college students are under. Make a difference. Impact. Change the world. And we see people hurting everywhere around us in Philadelphia, in our neighborhoods, and around the world. And, and there's this temptation, I, I've got to help everybody like right now. But the road to hell, we know, is paved with good intentions. And so I, I, I wanted to always say to our, our college, my college kids, slow down, take a deep breath, start with the person next to you. Have lunch with somebody, a friend, somebody who lives in the dorm. Don't feel like you've got to change the world right now. It was uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, and then Larry David later said, I love humanity, but I hate people. Boaz is doing something that I think is, is, is really hard. It's like, yeah, humanity, whatever. I love people. I love the person like that's right next to me, that's right in front of me. The way that Ruth loved Naomi. And even when Naomi came, comes back to, to Bethlehem and like I came back empty and who's standing there? It's Ruth and Ruth is loving her and it's saying, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna provide for you. I'm gonna care for you. On a smaller scale, loving the person in front of you. That's what Ruth did. And now it's what Boaz is doing. And it's hard to do. But with Boaz, there, there's hope in the story as we go on. But here's this tension again. He may not be able to marry her. So again, if we think of the painting, the painting's starting to get messy. The colors are starting to clash a little bit. And yet he takes this mission to rescue Ruth upon himself. He's like, we're going to figure it out. I'll help you figure this out. It's either going to be me or it's going to be him. Somebody will take care of you. You're going to be cared for. So Boaz asks the closer relative, are you going to marry her? Will you redeem? And this, what's called, he's described as a kinsman redeemer. He says, yes, I will redeem. And here's why. It involves land. It's a pretty good deal. More land is good, and he can add to his property and renown and inheritance, and it's in his best interest to do so. But Boaz says, you know, by the way, you get the land, but you're, you're marrying Ruth as well. And as you do that, it's Malon's line, her ex-husband's line that goes on. It's not your 
family line attached to this land. And the guy had to pause. Think about that. This kinsman redeemer is Mary, this Moabitess woman. And to us, we're like, no big deal. She's from a different country. No big deal. But think of it this way, and this is how I think how radical it really is. Think if your friends, guys, a friend comes to you and says, I want you to meet someone. She's uh, part of a radical sun god, sun god cult, jihadist cell, sleeper cell, but she's really cute. She's got a great personality. I think you'll love her. What would you say? You'd say, no, absolutely not. And so in some ways, we're sympathetic to this kinsman redeemer. It's like, yeah, that sounds like not a great deal. Why would you try to set me up with her? This is crazy. A Moabitess? No. Take her husband's name? No. And I think this is an example in the story of wanting to protect the self, self-preservation, to protect self, manage risk, avoid obstacles, keep security. I'll take the land, the kinsman redeemer is saying, but she's not going to do me any good. She's a liability. She'll impair my inheritance. I'll have one more mouth to feed. Self-interest. Self-interest. We had some friends, my family had um, some friends, and they found out in their pregnancy that um, their twins were going to be born with uh, degenerative disease and Down syndrome. And their doctors and, and people around them um, said, you know, you have options. And uh, no. Well, this child is going to be really difficult. These children are going to be really, it's going to be really hard. There will be people in our lives that in some ways we could say, well, yeah, they suck the life out of us. And there's not a whole lot that we get back in return. It can be really tempting to preserve self. It's in my self-interest to avoid that person, to avoid that family member who has Alzheimer's and doesn't even remember that I, I went and visited and talked to them. You could say, well, it doesn't really do me any good. It's not worth it. But oh, how worth it it is. Boaz, in this case, he sees a blessing and he sees what this nearer kinsman redeemer can't see. And notice what happens in the story. This other kinsman redeemer wants to protect himself. He wants to keep his name, his legacy, his family line going. And if he takes Ruth as his bride, then Malon's line survives, not his. And, and so in self-interest, he's like, no, I can't do that. But there's irony here. This kinsman redeemer is not named doesn't have a name. Now, the book of Ruth, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, everybody has a name that means something. Dead people are named. But this man isn't named. He's just called the Redeemer. And that's even ironic because he's not even a Redeemer. He's forgotten. And so we think of this whole story and it's gotten all messy and strange and, and, and we come back to and we say, well, yeah, but, but God in his sovereignty and in his goodness and this guy that's protecting his own self-interest, yeah, don't worry about him. But Ruth, Boaz, yeah, we remember them. We're talking about them. We're saying their name. How many thousands of years later and five bazillion years from now, we're going to be talking about the name of Ruth. Why? 
because through her family line and story comes the Christ. She's Jesus' grandma. Great, great, great. Grandma. And always will be. God paints Jesus into Ruth's story in a very strange roundabout way. So friends, this book is actually about Jesus. And Jesus said in John 5.39, um, all of scripture is about him. The story of Ruth, we, I read it and I, I love this story. It's beautiful. But it's not a Jane Austen story. It's a prequel to the life of Jesus. Something here is showing us and getting us ready to anticipate what Jesus is like, what the gospel is like. It's right here in Ruth. And so let's, let's start to kind of apply this to our hearts. There may be some here who are battling doubt. You have a hard time believing the gospel. And you can say generally, yeah, I believe that God is loving and Jesus died for sinners, but not sure that Jesus died for me. You see, still see maybe your identity according to the flesh, what you can see. You're like, man, my life is a mess. It's one of those paintings that, man, I can't make sense of it. I don't understand it. And I am a broken person. But here's what the gospel does. Here's what the story of Ruth does. It says God is painting a story in your life. And when you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and the only thing you've given him is your sin, not your goodness, not your righteousness, but your sin. And you say, Jesus, I, I need you desperately. And I want you to do something in my life that I can't do. Which I want you to paint something beautiful. He does. You're like, well, I don't see it happening right now. I just see the world around me and I'm a mess and the world's a mess and trust he's doing something. He's doing something. Through union with Christ, by faith in Christ, just as you've given Jesus your sin, he's given you his righteousness. So God, the father, doesn't look at you and see your mess and see the messy, horrible painting He sees beauty. He sees righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus in you. And in the same way that Boaz took all of Ruth's debt, so Jesus takes ours. And just as Ruth now has a new family and has identified with Boaz, we do too. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a new identity. It's not sinner, it's saint. You say, well, I still sin. God the Father looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the good news. So it doesn't matter what kind of debt you're carrying. You can say with Ruth, what, what liabilities, debts do you have? I, I don't have any. She can say, Boaz took them. We can say, Jesus took them. It's a transfer of inheritance and identity. So, Let's keep going. Boaz says, I'm going to take her as my wife. And the elders say, if we look at verse 12 in chapter 4, may she be like Rachel and Leah. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And that sounds sweet unless you know the story of Tamar and Judah. In which case, a woman whose husband died, and she thinks she's going to die alone, and her future is gone. So she takes it upon herself to dress like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law to impregnate her. 
Why would they reference that? Well, they're saying, even as God has taken all this ugliness and brokenness and hardship and through it brought hope, may God do the same to you, Ruth. And then we remember, where is this all taking place? In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, where another rejected, abandoned, desperate young woman with no husband is taken in by a man who seemed to be ruining his life. And in a cave in Bethlehem, one is born who will take our burden upon himself. This story of Ruth, it leads to Jesus. God works that out in a story where it's difficult to see. And, and I know some of us here, we have submerged hidden sin and we feel the roiling in our guts. Man, it's ugly. But in all of history, Christ is redeeming, even as Boaz redeems Ruth, to paint a lovely portrait. All right, if we would look at Matthew 1, you don't have to turn here, but I want to read this to you. It's Matthew 1, New Testament, Gospel. Matthew 1, we have a genealogy, and it's the same genealogy in in most respects that ended the book of Ruth. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. In the wonderful compassion of the Lord, he raises up the lowly and despised to the greatest glory and majesty. And in Christ, God is doing that even now in you. You who are united to Jesus in faith. So I want to show you one last picture. Can we get that one last picture up there, Beth? And then we're going to be done. So this is, this is at the Sistine Chapel. And um, you can see Boaz, Obed, Salmon. It's connecting actually the family to the line of, of Moses. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of art in the world. I think that's uh, Michelangelo, I think. Did somebody say yes, affirm that? Good, yes, thank you. Good. So beauty, a masterpiece, a masterpiece. Did you know, some of you I think probably already did know this, in Ephesians 2.10, God uses that word, masterpiece, for you. You are a poema, poem, a masterpiece that God is writing, he's drawing, he's putting together, he's pulling all these disparate parts and making it into a whole, into something that's beautiful. And he's doing that as we speak. He takes all the heartache and hurt and pain and he creates beauty. So here's our application. You have a story. And if you are a follower of Jesus, it is a beautiful story. God is painting it right now, writing it right now in your life. This week, share it with somebody. And I had a friend who was a really good evangelist and he shared the gospel with everybody that he would meet. And he said, even as I do that, it's, it's like those pictures if we put those ones up of when my girls were little. It looks like that probably. It's like it's supposed to be a sailboat and instead it looks like a sea monster or something. It, I want to ask you this question. What do you, as the girls' dad, which painting, Michelangelo or those first ones you saw, which do you think I think are more beautiful? I kind of like the first ones. Your father wants to see you draw a picture. 
It's one that he's drawing, but you can share that with other people around you, and it will be beautiful. John Calvin wrote that the world is the theater of God's glory, and if God is directing your story, it will end in beauty. Let's pray together. Father God, um, for my friends here this morning who, whether they're, they're followers of Jesus or not, feel like their lives are pretty messy and pretty unbeautiful, Lord God, would you, um, in your mercy and your compassion, restore, redeem, make something beautiful, Lord God, and help us to see that all around us there are glorious ruins. All people created in your image, glorious, but ruined by their own sin or the sin of the world around them. And so, Lord God, would you make beautiful these glorious ruins? We pray you would do this for the sake of this town, for the sake of this state and this country and this world, for your glory, O God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.